It's been said that trials and tribulation are the great equalizer. And I think we find that to be true in most situations. Um, there's an incident that happened on September 16th of 1964 in which a boat carrying seven people um, was shipwrecked on an unknown island. And the group of people who were on that boat was a very diverse group of people. Um, you had the captain, obviously, and another crew member, a millionaire and his wife, a Hollywood actress, a college professor, and one other passenger. Um, if you're wondering why everyone else is chuckling, if you're under 30 or so, that's a uh, reference to a TV show called Gilligan's Island, um, where they were out on a three-hour tour and got stuck on an island with, like, years' worth of supplies. Um, crazy deal. But... The whole point of the show is that, like, that shipwreck was the great equalizer, right? You had people on that boat from all walks of life. You had rich, you had poor, educated, uneducated, famous, not famous. Once they were on that island, it didn't matter. They were all there together. All their accomplishments and achievements and anything they'd done was stripped away by that incident, and all they were left with was each other. I think Paul is doing something similar to that when he transitions from chapter 1 to chapter 2 of Romans. You may remember from our introductions in Romans that Paul is writing to a church where there's kind of a rift between the Jews and the Gentiles, where the Jews tend to think that they're God's favored and special people, and maybe they aren't as much in need of the work of Jesus and grace as the Gentiles would be. And what Paul's trying to do in this passage is level the playing field and help them see that all of them need Jesus just as much as the other. The style of writing we encounter here and throughout much of the book of the Romans is what's called the diatribe, where Paul is basically having an argument with an imaginary opponent. Um, he's not texting, right? So he can't send something, get a response, and respond to that response and go back and forth. So instead, he's just kind of having an argument with this imaginary guy, trying to get ahead of the objections the people that are reading it would likely be making and then answering those as he goes. Um, and so we're going to walk through that, and we're going to see uh, three things from this passage. Um, and all of them have to do with the reality that because we've all sinned, which was what Paul has established in Romans chapter 1, that everyone in some way or another has sinned. Um, and because of that, God's wrath is being revealed against all humanity. And so three things. Number one, because we've all sinned, number one, we are all in the same boat. We're all in the same boat. And I think that's a phrase that if you've been in church for a while, you've grown up hearing the gospel, that's, that's easy to affirm. It's easy to hear, yeah, yeah, we're, we're, we all need Jesus, right? We, we're all in the same boat. We've, we've all sinned. Yes, nod, got that. Let's move on. And I think what Paul is doing here is saying, do you really, though, do you truly get that? Do you truly understand that we are all in the same boat? Because what Paul does in Romans chapter 1 is he basically lists some of the sins that first century Jews would find to be some of the most appalling and offensive things that they could imagine. Things like idolatry and homosexuality. 
for a first century Jew, those things would just be absolutely abhorrent. And when Paul is listing off how in chapter 1, how God's wrath is being revealed from heaven because men have suppressed the truth and exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped the creature rather than the creator, all these terrible things the Gentiles have done, he's listing them out, anticipating that a Jew would be reading it and go, yeah, yeah, that's terrible. Of course God's judgment is revealed. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, it's like Paul flips the script on them. It's like that was all just a setup to pull the rug out from underneath them. Look in chapter 2, verse 1, he says this, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. Every one of you who judges. You can imagine a Jew reading this, and when Paul used that word judges, it's like, oh, that, that stings a little. You're saying all those things, yeah, I'm... I'm definitely judging in my heart those who do things. And he goes on, for in passing judgment to one another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Now, first glance, a Jew might read that and think, practice the very same, Paul, no. I I would never do some of those things you mentioned in chapter 1. But then if they were to look back up in the letter, what they would see is that right alongside idolatry and homosexuality, you find these sins, boastful, gossips, and disobedience to parents. So that Paul is saying, whatever thoughts you were having of those people deserving God's judgment, guess what? You are right there with them in the same boat. Douglas Moo is a commentator who was picking up on this. He said it like this. He said, Paul was well accustomed to preaching about the sinfulness of all human beings based on natural revelation. As he did so, he was familiar with people in the crowd who would be quite eager to join in his condemnation and pride themselves as superior to the idolaters and fornicators whom he was raking over the coals. And we can imagine Paul suddenly turning on such people and shocking them with this direct accusation. So what Paul is basically saying is that you, some of you Jews are reading this and you hear about these abhorrent sins. And man, you are eager for God's judgment. You are celebrating God's hand of judgment coming against those things. But do you think you're exempt from that same judgment? Do you think that only the Gentiles will stand before God and give an account and you're just going to get the wink and the nod because you're a Jew? He's saying God shows no partiality. All will stand and give an account. We have, in my family, we've got kids in sports right now. And um, I love it. love kids' sports. It's a blast. Um, lots of good people watching kids' sports games. Um, one of the things that's, that's just really interesting to see is how the coaches treat their own kids. Especially on opposing teams, you know, you get to kind of watch that. And I found there's, there's, there's two extremes usually, right? I'm sure there's some in the middle, but it's fun to make some fun of the extremes. So here we go. Um, so there's, there's some coaches who just like, their kid can do, do no wrong, right? And like any mistake their kid makes, there's, it's someone else's fault. It's excusable. Mistakes other kids would make, they would get yanked and sat on the bench. But if their kid makes that mistake, they're staying in. It's like everything is about making them succeed. Then you've got other coaches that do the opposite extreme, right? That it's like, if everyone misses a layup and has to run a lap, well, if my kid misses one, he's running five laps because 
My kid knows better, right? There's a higher expectation. And what Paul's essentially doing here in this text, he's talking about God just shows no partiality. He's like, you guys think that because you're Jews, you're going to just, things are going to be nice and easy. You're going to get special treatment. And Paul says, no, no, no. Because you're Jews, on the day of reckoning, you will be first in line. With your knowledge comes responsibility and accountability. Look in verses 9 and 11, 9 through 11. It says this. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also to the Greek. For God shows no partiality. So essentially what he says to the Jews is the only special treatment you will get is that when the bill comes due, you will be first in line. There's a, some people who take those, that passage in 9 through 11, kind of make an argument that it's saying, well, look, it's saying there's tribulation and distress for everyone who does evil and glory and honor to those who do, who do good. So maybe this is scripture saying that, like, if you try really hard and you do really good, you'll receive honor and praise from the Lord by your own works and that maybe you don't even need Jesus if you live good enough. But I think if you keep reading Romans, what you see is that the guy that does everything right and receives commendation from God, he's a, he's a hypothetical figure that no one can actually do that. Because we're going to see in chapter 3, it says, all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. So we've got these two categories. He's saying the Jews, the Greeks, everyone is in this camp. I found this quote kind of humorous. It's, I guess it's like um, what uh, smack talk looked like in the 16th century. It's from John Calvin talking about people who misinterpret this verse. He says, They who pervert this passage for the purpose of building up justification by works deserve most fully to be laughed at, even by children. So, what Calvin's saying, like, you, you interpret it that way, you, just, uh, you deserve to be laughed at, even by children. But the point he's saying is that all of us are in need of righteousness. So that's easy to hear all that and go, yeah, that's, that's great, Kai. I'm, I'm glad to know that when Paul wrote this letter, he was you know, calling out the Jews for their hypocrisy, for thinking they would have special treatment. Cool. What does that have to do with me? I'm not a Jew. Maybe there's a few people in who are, but you probably don't think that way. And so what does that have to do with us today? How does this relate? Well, First of all, let me say this. We have to be careful not to draw a direct correlation. I think it would be tempting to read that and go, just like the Jews couldn't presume upon God's kindness because they were Jews, we as Christians can't presume upon God's kindness because of the cross, but actually we, we do indeed bank on God's kindness and forgiveness through the cross. So we have to be careful not to correlate it too closely. But at the same time, there are implications for us regarding understanding our need for Jesus and the cross. Our culture responds to sin very differently depending on the type of sin it is, ourselves included. Right? There are certain sins that if you're speaking with someone and they confess struggling with certain things, maybe it's being too negative with their kids or getting angry in traffic um, or some sort of a mild addiction manner, you would think, oh man, that's that's hard. We want to we know that you're not judged. We want you to know that this is a safe place. We want to have compassion for you. We want to welcome you into our fold. We want to walk with you as you pursue Christ in that. 
And that when we hear certain sins, there's a heart response of compassion and empathy and understanding. But then there are other types of sins that elicit a different response from us, if we're really honest. One of those more egregious sins as deemed by our culture might be racism. Might be those who would say, like, yeah, I would be glad to walk with someone doing that, but if someone says they're struggling with racism, I want nothing to do with that person. Right? There's a lot of there's a lot of outreach programs churches have for like people struggling with alcoholism, right? Man, we want to start an outreach program. And if you're an alcoholic, that's a struggle for you. Man, we want to know you're not judged here and embrace you. You don't see a lot of that for people struggling with racism. You don't see a lot of racism outreach programs. We could say the same thing about acts of terror, right? You think about um, Hamas showing up at a beach in Israel, slaughtering innocent civilians. Or maybe someone more locally in a school shooting. We don't hear of those things and go, oh, that is so hard for that person and just immediately respond with lots of empathy and compassion. We could add a third example to that and it's child abuse. Think about someone who's done something to a child and man, our, our hearts typically respond in just a longing for justice. Before we go any further, let me just say that's, that's not wrong. Uh, Romans chapter 12 actually talks about that, how if, if someone has wronged you or hurt you, that one of the reasons you're able to not seek vengeance and revenge against that person is that you can leave it to the wrath of God. You can trust that God is the judge and all things will come to light and all things will be dealt with. We can take some comfort in that. I also want to disclaim this by saying I'm, I'm not here to make the point that if someone has been charged with child abuse, that we should just ignore that and move on. We clearly want to take protection of children very seriously. And sometimes in light of certain sins, there might be parameters and protections that have to be put in place in the wake of that. It's not saying that all sin is the same. What Paul is saying is that all sin puts us ultimately in the same situation before God. See, what Paul does in Romans 1 is he lists all these abhorrent, unthinkable things that would make the the readers eager to see God's hand of judgment come against the sinner. And so for us to apply that, the thing to do would be to think of the sins that that make you most eager for judgment. Whether that's racism or acts of terror or child abuse, think of those things and then know that outside of Christ, you are no better off than they are. Outside of Christ, we are all in the same boat and have equal need of grace and forgiveness. That the shipwreck of sin has put us all in the same situation. In the same boat, right there next to the racist, child abusers, and terrorists. Romans is teaching us that we need forgiveness just as much as the terrorist and the child abuser. So we consider our own sin, we are often a lot less eager to see God's justice executed, right? When we think through the sins we wrestle with and and grapple with, we tend to maybe justify or excuse those things or minimize them. Not often do we think of our own sin and rebellion and disobedience and think, yeah, but God's going to come through. His justice will prevail. And yet we find ourselves often eager for that in others, sometimes even of the same sins. 
Again, this is not to say there's no difference. Just as a way to illustrate this, imagine that everyone in this room, it's just as a lot of people in this room, um, we're uh, on a boat. It's to be a pretty big boat, I guess. And we're five miles off the coast of Florida in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And something happens, and the boat sinks. There's no life rafts. It's up to every individual to swim to shore for safety. Now, some of us are just going to sink, right? Like, you're not, you're not going anywhere, right? Some of us, if someone says, hey, guys, I know the way. We got to go this way to get to safety. You're going to go, uh-uh, nobody's telling me what to do. And you're going to swim the exact opposite direction that you should, right? There's going to be differences, right? And that, that's true even once you become Christians, right? There ought to be a difference in us in the world. We ought to be able to navigate the waters of life in such a way that we look different, that there is a practical righteousness being played out in our lives that make us look different than those who don't know the Lord. And so, again, that's not to say we're all the exact same because of sin, but we're all in the same situation in desperate need of salvation. And if you're thinking, yeah, but five miles, man, I, I, might, could, I might could do that, you know, or maybe Michael Phelps is on the boat. He could swim five miles. I forgot to mention the shore we all have to swim to for safety is in Europe. That's the situation sin has put us in. There's not a person on earth who could swim their way out of that. It's not a person diligent enough that's trained hard enough, that's strong enough to pull himself out of that situation. And that is the picture the Bible paints of us in regards to our sin, that because of sin, we're all in the same boat and are in desperate need of a rescue. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, Paul makes a statement about the grace of God and about himself, and he says this, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Christ Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. So what is Paul saying? Well, it's not a stretch to think that Paul was saying, yeah, I've, I've sinned a lot worse than most people, right? Like I'm the worst sinner. If you know Paul's history, you know that before um, he came to faith in Christ, he was actually persecuting Christians, likely, um, if not just approving it, likely involved in killing Christians. So it's easy to see if Paul would go, yeah, I'm the worst sinner, but Step back for a second and think. I don't, I don't think what Paul is saying is no one in the history of humanity has ever sinned worse or more than me. Right? He's not, he's not trying to claim this title that like I have sinned above and beyond what anyone else can ever hope to do. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that he is keenly aware of his own need for grace and forgiveness from God because of his own sin. I was talking to um, a foreign exchange student um, about a month ago. She's uh, at one of our uh, members' family's house, hanging out after lunch, and we're talking, and she had some questions about the faith. She's not a, not a Christian, but has friends that are, and just has a lot of questions. One of the things she said was just like, I, I don't understand how Christians believe that if someone simply believes in Jesus, even if that person was like a mass murderer. Like, how could God possibly forgive that person? I just don't see how he could do it. I don't see how God could look at a person who's done those things. And she was just astounded and baffled at the idea that God would have so much grace and forgiveness to be able to forgive someone who's done something like that. And I think what Paul's getting at here in 1 Timothy 15 is 
That's the way we ought to feel about ourselves. In regards to the gospel and what God has done in sending his innocent son, Jesus, to live a perfect life that we couldn't live, die in our place in order to rescue us from our sin, that we would look at that and go, I can't believe that God would do that for someone like me. I can't believe it. Amazing grace. How could God possibly find it in his heart to love someone like me in that way? So that's the first observation today that we're all in the same boat. And secondly, what we see at the beginning of chapter 2 in those first few verses is that we are all in no place to pass judgment. Now, I think you understand, right, that when we say we're not to judge and when the scriptures talk about that, there's some caveats there, right? We have to judge what is and isn't sin. We have to know right from wrong. We have to be able to look at the way we and others act and say these things are bad, these things are good. But what it's talking about here in passing judgment, what Paul seems to be doing is going after the heart of those who are looking at others' sins and thinking that they're somehow categorically different than that person. Tim Keller was commenting on this uh, set of verses and he said it this way. He said, to pass judgment in 2.1 is not simply saying that is wrong, but accompanying it with a particular attitude of basically saying, you were lost and I'm glad because now I feel better about myself. In other words, to pass judgment is to believe others are worthy of God's judgment while you are not. And friends, there's a very practical component to this, that when we truly understand we are in the same boat as our fellow sinners, no matter what they've done, we have the ability to look upon those in the boat with us with a measure of grace and understanding and compassion, even if they have done the most vile and abhorrent things, because we know what it's like to be trapped and deceived by sin. I was thinking of a way to demonstrate this and um, thought about this video clip I saw three or four years ago. Give you the kind of the background here. This, um, this uh, police officer goes to the wrong door, ends up shooting and, and killing an innocent man. So she's on trial, and the guy who was killed, his brother is there. What you're going to find out is this guy's a Christian, and because of that, he has this radical, otherworldly approach to her and attitude towards her, even as the woman who's responsible for killing his own brother. So let's take a look at this. I can speak for myself. I, I forgive you, and I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. And I don't think anyone could say it. Again, I'm speaking for myself, not even bad for my family. But I love you just like anyone else. And I'm not gonna say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did, but I see I I personally want the best for you. And I, I wasn't gonna ever say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. 
I want the best for you. Because I know that's what that's exactly what both of them would want you to do. And the best would be give your life to Christ. I'm not gonna say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do. What a powerful display of what the gospel does when it gets a hold of someone's heart. And I, I can't imagine how, how else you can make sense of a guy responding that way. And the only way a guy can respond that way is if he understands how great the forgiveness he has received is and is now in a place to extend that forgiveness to others. If you've seen the, that clip before, you've probably watched it a little further when he then asked the judge, could I go give her a hug? She's probably hurting really bad right now. I would like to just hug her and embrace her and let her know that I don't harbor any ill will towards her. And I cut that part out because we don't have enough Kleenex to go around um, to keep everything going here. But it's a very emotional moment, but it's a very powerful display of what the gospel does to us and how it enables to see the others that are in the boat of being broken by sin with us, not with an attitude of judgment and abhorrence, although we may be abhorred by sin, that we can be compassionate to those who've been deceived and trapped by it because we're all in the same boat. We are not in a place to pass judgment. The gospel empowers us to offer an otherworldly kind of understanding and compassion and forgiveness to even our worst enemies. And lastly, third observation today is that we are all in need of an alien righteousness, which is, it's where this is all pointed, it's where it's all headed, and and you understand by the word alien, I don't mean like outer space, Martian kind of stuff, I mean something from the outside, that if you're stuck in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, five miles off the coast of Florida, and you have to swim east to Europe, nothing in you can help you. (laughs) Something from the outside must come to your rescue. You are utterly unable and insufficient to rescue yourself from that situation. And the message of the gospel is that that's where we were but God. Because of his great love for us and his son, at great cost to himself to rescue us from that peril. And friends, let me just stop real quick and say this. I don't want to assume that everyone in this room identifies with the Jew here. There may be some of you in this room that you're thinking, yeah, I'm, I'm the one that committed the quote-unquote egregious abhorrent sin. Maybe it was an affair that you've not disclosed or an abuse or an abortion. And maybe you're sitting there thinking like, how could God possibly forgive me? And here, friends, here's the, here's the reality. The guy sitting behind you or in front of you who looks like he's got it all together, he needs Jesus just as much as you do. There's this phrase you hear people saying, which is the most theologically ignorant phrase we could possibly say when we're talking about someone and their issues. Like, oh, that, that person needs Jesus. Yeah, just as much as you do. We're all in the same boat. We are all in desperate need of forgiveness and rescue. 
but God has provided the solution in Jesus who came to earth and lived the perfect life that you and I couldn't live, the one man who didn't need forgiveness, the one man whose ship didn't sink. And what did he do? He came in and died on our behalf to rescue us from our peril and forgive us and bring us back to God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the message that's unfolding in Romans and the hope that we have in Jesus. And God, I pray that this text would do its work on us, that vertically and horizontally, that we would, number one, understand that our need for forgiveness is just as deep and just as real as anyone we would look on and judge for the abhorrence of their sins. And God, that we would, because of that, be able to have a measure of compassion and want the best for people. That we would, no matter what someone has done, if they've wronged us, if they've wronged us, they would, we would look at them and go, the best thing would be if you would believe in Jesus. That would be the best thing. God, would you form us into a people that think and live that way? In Christ's name, amen.